Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Dr. Francois Booker-Drew about bonding and bridging capital in organizations as they connect to diversity and inclusion and being a successful leader. Francois Booker-Drew, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to have the chance to talk with you today. Uh, It's going to be a fun conversation around social capital and its connection to leadership and some of your experience uh, in some of your leadership roles throughout your career. As we get started today, I want to just briefly share with the listeners Dr. Francois's bio. She is the founder and CEO of Solstice Consultancy, specializing as a partnership broker and leadership expert for companies and organizations to thrive with measurable and meaningful impact. She also is the VP of Community Affairs uh, and Strategic Alliances for the State uh, Fair of Texas. Drew, uh, excuse me, Dr. Brooker Drew is a passionate philanthropist and co-founder of Heritage Giving Circle. Her connectivity, expertise, uh, notable research is highlighted in quotes and profiles in major media, such as Forbes, Huffington Post, Bustle, um, Aussie, and other outlets around the world. As a professional speaker, she educates and expands upon various subject matter, such as social capital and networking, leadership, diversity, and community development. She is well regarded by national and international audiences and served as a workshop presenter at the United Nations on the Access to Power. Uh, Again, thank you so much for joining me. What a tremendous background. I really look forward to our discussion and learning from you and and gaining some of your insights as it relates to leadership, social capital, and uh, diversity and all of these different topics. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here to share. Uh, Looking forward to the conversation. It's always wonderful when I can share more about what I love. Yeah, excellent. Is Before we really launch into the conversation, is there anything else about yourself or your background that you'd like to share with listeners? No, I think you've given me a great introduction. So thank okay. you. <laughs> Good. Um, okay, well, so let's start with social capital. Um, why is social capital so important um, to you personally, but also just to everyone? Um, and why is it such a common theme in your life and your work? You know, social capital is something that we all have, but I don't think we are intentional about the ways in which we develop it. You know, especially now during COVID, it is so important for us to think about not just this ideal of social distancing. I cringe when I hear that because it really is physical distancing. We need social connections. 
And social capital really is about associations, relationships, our networks. And so the term was coined um, early 1900s by a gentleman by the name of Hannafin. And he saw these parents talking in a parking lot. So, and it was just an area I'm calling a parking lot, but talking and really sharing information. And the term has moved throughout history where you see it show up in economics, where you see it uh, um, appear in conversations around urban planning. But it really is looking at the way in which we use our networks um, as a form of currency. I tend to you know, have some resistance to that because I think on one hand, relationships do move things and they can be transactional. But I think it's also important to think about how relationships can be transformational. And so throughout my life, I've been very blessed to have folks who have shown up as mentors and guides and teachers, but I've also had people who've been sponsors, those folks who've opened doors for me and who've opened opportunities. And I think it's, you know, even more so now in the situation we find ourselves in, that it's important that we start thinking about the ways that we're leveraging our existing relationships, but more importantly, how are we building networks that both are bridging and are bonding. And, and what that basically means is it's easy for us to connect to people that are just like us because same is safe. <clears throat> and that's a bonding social capital. But the goal is ultimately, how do we get people to start thinking about this ideal of bridging social capital? What does it mean to connect to people who are different, you know, not just race, but ideology, who are different in the ways that they see the world? Because that's when we get rich information that we can use to help benefit our lives both personally and professionally. I love that. I love uh, differentiating the bonding versus the bridging social capital. And I mean, we all know the importance of networks and we know the importance of relationships in the workplace, um, just in terms of effective collaboration, but also access to power and the opportunities and to be able to get ahead in your career. So, I mean, everyone knows that. There's no question about the value of those connections, but I really like how you you break it apart and you focus on the bonding uh, versus the bridging social capital and that's so you know particularly relevant today given um, you know all of the the work that organizations are trying to do around diversity and inclusion um, and within this this current kind of broader social and political context um, you know with the Black Lives Matters movement and all of the attention that is being brought to um, to race relations and to systemic um, issues of around inequality, you know, so it's it's super important that we look for ways to bridge across networks uh, that that has meaning for diversity and inclusion, but that also has meaning for just effective organizations that bring in diverse people with different backgrounds, different ways of thinking and seeing the world, but, uh, different framings. Um, and that enriches the, the workplace, but it also connects us individually uh, outside of our our more insular kind of bubble uh, of, like you said, you know, we tend to to be around people who are like us because that's what's comfortable, that's what we're used to, and if we don't really actively try to push out the edges of our bubble through this bridging capital approach, uh, then ultimately over time. Uh, will just become increasingly um, locked in to our own um, our own echo chamber and that will hinder our ability to be successful in our careers. Well, and it's also helping people be comfortable with moments of cognitive dissonance. 
which is something that I'm constantly pushing people about. It, it is being okay with, you know, and I tell my daughter this, with multiple realities existing at the same time. So I can be right and you can be right too. And not going, no, it's either or, and you have to be wrong because I'm right. Helping people understand this idea that both and is okay. And when we have moments of cognitive dissonance where we're faced with situations where we're going, oh my goodness, I don't like this. It makes me uncomfortable. How do we wrestle with that? And I think what we have to pay attention to is our identity is tied to those things that we believe. And so when we are confronted with ideas that are very different than our own, it's so easy to run and go, no, that can't be correct. Because then it's challenging the narrative that we've said for years that these values are right. Instead of going, let me wrestle with the discomfort that this moment of cognitive dissonance is bringing to me. And why do I feel this way? And I think for many of us, you know, we run, there was a study Gallup did some months ago where they were talking about, you're starting to see more polarization because when people find in their communities that they don't have a lot of people who have the same political ideology they do, they tend to retreat. And that's problematic because it does create these silos and it creates, creates polarization instead of people going, so why does it make me feel uncomfortable to hear this person who has a different point of view? And how do we, we create these safe spaces for people to begin to listen and wrestle in that uncomfortableness together? I love that. I mean, the world is complex. <clears throat> Excuse yes. me. There's lots of ambiguity. Uh, very few things are black and white. Um, yes in my opinion, at least, it sounds like I agree. agree. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's, it is about the wrestle. It's about the uncomfortable spaces and the ambiguities um, and the nuances. And people need to learn how to be, how to be comfortable and thrive in that environment. And frankly, the average person isn't really. Yes. Um, and, and so, but, but they can become that way. Um, but like you said, you have to get past the, the cognitive dissonance. So, so many people, they feel like as soon as they have that dissonance occur, they don't like how that feels. And so because they don't like how that feels, there must be something wrong with it. Exactly. Which, which means they, they flee, they, they avoid it. You know, from a religious standpoint, they think, you know, they otherize people. And so they, yes. they're saying someone thinks differently than I do in terms of belief. So I'm, I'm good. They're bad. Right. And we do the same thing politically yes. rather, rather than engaging with the complexity. Um, and, and so confirmation bias plays in and we just need to, to learn that we all have those biases and that we can, as long as we're proactive about it, we can check ourselves and we can kind of push ourselves out of our comfort zone so that we have a chance to really learn and grow. But this is the thing with, with that. And I totally agree. It shows up in our leadership. So those personal difficulties, difficulties that we have, show up in our workspaces and it shows up in the way that we relate to people. So when we're not wrestling with those moments and questioning why we believe the way that we believe, it impacts other people and it impacts the way that we connect to people. It impacts our relationships. I'm really big on this idea of relational leadership because I love thinking about ways in which we work with people to make them the, the better version of who they are because we can get so much accomplished when we're able to tap into that. It takes time and it's so easy quite often to look at people for the functionality that they provide and perform versus looking at the totality of a person and saying, if I'm able to work with, with all of this, oh my goodness, what can they produce? 
And I don't think we recognize that those biases and all those things come and show up in, in, in not just our workplace, but the way we tell our stories about ourselves, the way that we talk about other, the way that we lead, whether it's in our home or on the job, all of that manifests itself. I completely agree. Um, very well said. And so the challenge, I guess, becomes, again, like you said, whether it's in the home, whether it's in our communities, in the workplace, whatever, all of this applies. But let's, let's focus in for a moment on the workplace. And if we're talking about effective leadership, how, how do, does your framing of social capital and this idea of bridging capital, how does that feed in to your conception of effective leadership? Um, you, you just mentioned uh, relational leadership. Um, I like to think about it in terms of servant leadership. I think there's yes. a lot of connection between it the is. two. What, what does that mean in practicality as leaders try to lead? You know, and this is going to sound so backwards. It starts with self. I am really big on creating spaces for reflection. And so for a leader to do really great work requires a leader to do a lot of introspection. One of the most profound experiences I had, and I was talking to a group about this yesterday, was I did what was called a reflective leadership essay. I started from the beginning of my life with my parents being the first set of leaders that I had and went through my experiences growing up in a Baptist church in the South and all of these different experiences of leadership and how those things frame me because we don't recognize that that is so much a part of our journey and it manifests in the way that we connect to other people. And so I think for effective leadership to begin, leaders always have to do self-examination. And I talked about, there's a book by Amanda Sinclair where she's saying, um, she examines the um, leaders of uh, WorldCom and Enron. And she said, one of the things that they did was they did not pay attention to their childhood traumas. And as a result of them not having spaces for introspection and checking, as you said, these kind of feedback loops, what happened was they made the lives of all those that were working for them miserable. I mean, look at what, the, what happened to the companies and people's retirements. And so if we don't deal with ourselves first, it is going to impact the way that we lead people. So number one is paying attention to how you show up and who you are. And then I think the second piece to effective leadership is how do you create these spaces within your company where people are safe and can talk. I'm not saying become a therapist and you're singing kumbaya and holding hands and everybody's crying and doing we are the world. That's not what I'm suggesting at all, but it is creating spaces where there are opportunities for learning. Um, and how do you create this kind of learning environment where you're having cross-pollination um, of your teams talking and sharing information? I think it is creating those spaces that are safe and always having the room for immediate feedback and course correction. And a lot of companies, what I find is we wait until it blows up and then we go, oh God, we got to do something when there were all these moments for feedback and course correction that as leaders, we didn't take the time because we didn't want to hear it. We wanted to get it done. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, both the urgency piece, because leaders, you know, they're getting it from all sides. There's lots of pressure. There's a heavy load on their shoulders and they are, they have an endless to-do list. And so they're, they are just trying to get things done. And so you have to learn to take the time, force yourself to take the time to quiet your mind, to self-reflect, um, to, to, to examine 
not not just the bigger strategic vision, but also you know examine the processes, examine the relationships, um, all yes. of those sorts of things. I I just experienced that. Um, uh, I had a, a pretty intense experience at an organization recently um, where I observed this happening in real time, and you know giving people the benefit of the benefit of the doubt i'm assuming that no one had like any intentional malice towards the other parties but basically there was a systematic um set of problems that over the course of a year and a half two years had really dire implications for a, a bunch of different individuals um and you know the way i saw it as i learned more about it and was uh, working with them is that uh, it really came down to just what you said, leaders weren't willing to ask the question. They weren't willing to look as they got little pieces of feedback along the way about the problems. They weren't willing to make at the time what would have been pretty simple course corrections. And instead it just kept on diverging and going down this path until you're a year and a half, two years down the road. And it's this major issue. Um, and, and everyone's scrambling to try to resolve it. Uh, and, and that's what we want to avoid. I mean, the same thing happens in relationships yes. at home, right? Yes. Uh, when you have marital discord, it happens because people aren't communicating because you let little things fester and eventually it blows up. The same thing happens in the workplace, even if everyone has good intentions. So yes. we, we can't just take it for granted that our good intentions will lead to good outcomes because it, you know, a lot of times it doesn't. And, and that's the thing is that I don't think people see the parallels of where and how you show up because how you're handling things at home, you often bring that same baggage with you in the way that you deal with things at work. And so that's why the reflection piece is so important. And leaders have to understand not only their own stories, organizations, just like you told, have stories. So for that to even happen within an organization says that there may be a culture that exists where just do the work, don't say anything about it, just get it done. And, and it's important for leaders to understand those stories and, and what I call those kind of water cooler conversations that organizations have where it may not necessarily be the values that are listed in the elevator, but it's this undercurrent um, of how they do business and really beginning to dissect that and pull that apart as to why do we only hire certain people? Why is it that if I speak out, you know, there's retaliation or I, I get the cold shoulder and really begin to dissect the stories of organizations because it has such an impact on even how a leader will show up. You could have the best leader come into an organization, but if it's toxic and there's a culture that does not allow people to, to grow, that leader will only be able to do so much. Absolutely. Um... Yeah, we ha we there's always trade-offs and there's always balancing and there's only so much we can do. So so again, intentionality, being proactive, being thoughtful, um, putting the our attention and priorities on this, I think is is really really critical. Um, I'd love in our last um, bit of time together to now go into some of your practical experience that you've had. Uh, you've had a tremendous career, and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about. Um, your role as VP of Community Affairs um, and the, some of the leadership lessons that you've had there. So I started in 2016 at the State Fair of Texas. I'd been at World Vision as National Community Engagement Director and so I had a team across the country and 
it was something managing a remote team that was spread out all over the place. So I learned a lot about creating these safe spaces so that you could build trust so your team could work with each other. And so when I went to the state fair, we really didn't have a department that was focused on community affairs. We were getting a lot of attention from the media because it's this huge organization that in 24 days makes millions of dollars. And uh, the community that we're located in had some issues in terms of having access. And so I came in and the first thing that I did was listen. Um, and that was very valuable. I did not want to take for granted that I knew the community. I'd worked there, my church is there. You know, I have a lot of relationships in that area. And it would have been very easy for me to walk in and start developing um, programming and structures based on what I thought. But I took several months to go around and listen to people. And I'll never forget one of the ladies who at that time was uh, in a political office, good friend of mine. She went off on me and I sat there and I was like, okay explain to me why you're so angry. And she said, I never had access before. And that was another important lesson to me is that quite often when people are angry, it is an issue of I've not been heard and I don't feel like I have access to people who are going to do something. And so in making myself available, that was huge in terms of, of turning the way people started to see the organization because people had access now. And I really tried to go in based on what I heard from the community and develop programming and even developing our philanthropy structure um, around what those needs are. And I think that the mistake that a lot of folks make when they're doing community development work is, I think they need tutoring. And you make these assumptions without actually listening to people and, and beginning to see that the issues quite often that you think exist, it's something much deeper. So in our community, it wasn't necessarily that kids need tutoring. They need internet access. So their grades are, are, are challenged because they don't have infrastructure that other communities have. And it requires you as a leader to go in, ask the right questions, as you said earlier, and dig a little deeper to really understand. And I'm, I'm proud because in four years, and there's still plenty of work to do. I don't want to get a twist and go, I've solved everything. I have not have an amazing team. But in four years, we've been able to partner with so many organizations. And that's the other lesson. You can't do work in silos. You have got to build relationships and partner with people because there is only so much you can do and there are skills that you don't have. So, you know, partnering with folks made a difference, but it was also looking at the assets of our organization. What was the human, the social, the financial capital that we had and paying attention to what we had in addition to identifying the assets that existed in our community. And so we've been able to fund, last year, we funded 67 organizations, almost a half a million dollars. We've been able to have these amazing convenings where we're helping our partners build social capital because what a lot of nonprofits will say is, I need money. And my response is, no, you need a relationship. And so if we can help connect you to resources through relationships, we know relationships make things happen. And so that's really been the story of my work is building relationships, um, partnering well, listening well, so that we can, you know, begin to at least move the needle toward making a difference. I love, I love that. I love the community orientation. I love the listening, going in and ask, asking the questions, listening to the living experts. Um, rather than trying to impose our own framing, our own preconceived notions onto those we're trying to serve and lead. 
Um, and there, I think there's a lot of implications of that for organizations. Um, you know, you're talking about community development work at the moment, but, but as we're leading teams, uh, it's the same thing. And, and yes. so, you know, oftentimes you'll have like a new VP will come into an organization or a new CEO, and it's not uncommon for them to go on what they call a listening tour. And they'll go around and they'll go to the different divisions, the different departments, and they'll try to better understand the organization. Um, and I think that's, that's powerful when it's done authentically. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. I've, I've definitely seen it where people do quote unquote listening tours, but it's really a name only, um, it is. you know, cause they just want that perception that they're listening, but they're not actually, um, mm -hmm. listening and people and employees know the difference. Um, it, you ha so you have to be authentically listening. You have to be authentically seeking to build those relationships with the intent to understand, not the intent to um to affirm your agenda <laughs> exactly exactly which I was is on a call that, and it's true i was on a call and i thought we were going to share what we were doing and it was really someone telling their plan and i was thinking wow you know that happens so often in communities is we walk in and go this is what i'm going to do i want you to buy into it and say you like it and then we're upset when people don't we say they're apathetic it's not that they're apathetic it's because they weren't given the opportunity to have buy into it. Well, yeah. And again, people, people know the difference and it only, you know, you might get away with it once or twice, maybe, but after there's a pattern of that kind of behavior, then people just shut down. They're not going to, yes. they're not going to think outside the box. They're not going to be creative because they're self pres there's, it's all about self-preservation at that point. They don't, they, they're just waiting for marching orders. They're waiting for the leader to tell them what to do. And they don't, you know, if, they, if they're going to go out on a limb to kind of do their own thing or propose their own idea, they could get shot down. And so mm -hmm. the quickest way to stifle innovation and creativity and productivity is exactly like you just described. You know, it's, it's to come into those types of meetings with an agenda already in place. And it's one of my pet peeves. You know, it's, it's one thing if, if, if a leader just sends out an email or they have a meeting and they just say flat out, you know, this is a meeting for me to tell you where we're at and what we're doing. That's one thing. When they say it's a meeting where we're going to have a discussion and we're going to try to brainstorm and we're going to try to come up with solutions, but they've already decided what they want to do and they just come to the meeting and try to, to force it on everyone. And then they wonder why people aren't contributing. Exactly. I mean, I, I just don't know what to do with that. So it, it, it is pretty frustrating. Well, it has been a real pleasure talking with you. We're, we're drawing close to the end of our time together. Um, but before we leave, I do want to uh, give you the last word and give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, learn more about um, what you're doing. So you can get connected to me on LinkedIn. I'm Francois Booker Drew. It's easy to find me with this name. So definitely reach out to me. You can email me at info at drfrancoiswa.com. And I answer emails and I've just finished um, my third book called Fly Away, which is a book of lessons for my daughter as she was transitioning to college. And so just trying to build momentum around that and share the story of what do you do when you're dealing with change, even in going to college is a change management process. And so um, I'm finding more and more ways to, to share with people how you can deal with change, whether it's in your personal professional life and how relationships are really at the core of it. I love that. I love that. And I hope um, listeners will reach out, get in touch. 
um, check out your book. Um, you know, I, I think you have a lot of really great insights and leadership isn't necessarily rocket science. There's pr pretty foundational principles that if you just start to try to put into practice today uh, and make small steps, you know, towards improvement, have a growth mindset, then you, you can do it and you can become one of those great leaders that everyone loves to work with and for. Yes. Um, so thank you so much for all of your insights today. And I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of their day. Stay healthy and safe. And I hope everyone has meaningful experiences at work. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.